Please or listen on as I read Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. And hear God's word. Now, Peter had just finished his Pentecost sermon and they, they cried out, What shall we do? And he answered that question, an answer I'll, I'll come to in the sermon. But this is what Luke says after that. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you now as we consider it again, having considered it not too long ago uh, here in the the evening service on Sunday nights, we we ask you that you might bless it afresh and anew in this new setting by your Holy Spirit, illumining it to us in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we're holding a Thanksgiving service, something which as warrant in our directory of worship, there are times where it is fitting uh, to offer thanksgiving to God, such as we did here in 2017 when we paid off the building, uh, or in some cases where the church purchased a new building, and, and uh, that's actually what's envisioned in the book, and, and the church thanks God for a building. Or 50 years, that's not in the book, but that might be another reason to praise God uh, in an age and in a land where so many churches are closing every day uh, and, and every year. The question which, which I had and uh, which I found many suggestions were being offered uh, for is what to preach on such an occasion. Now, the occasion, again, is this. We are celebrating the church. We are thanking God for her existence and his providential protection of her. We are also asking, what does the future hold in store for her? At least I think we ought to be asking that. We're looking back, but we're also looking forward. We're praising God, but we're also praying to God. And to me, there is no better way to deal with this question, what to say on such an occasion than this, to ask the this question, namely, what is a church? What's a church? Now, in preparation for this, uh, I was uh, I was reading J. Gresham Machen, and it did occur to me at least, and I doubt anyone could disagree with this, that on such an occasion, uh, I needed to be locked and loaded with some good Machen quotes, and I am. But in two occasions, uh, and uh, at the end of Fighting the Good Fight, uh, there's a little, uh, a little essay, uh, the, the responsibility of the church in the New Age, as well as uh, the end, the last chapter of Christianity, Christianity and Liberalism, uh, Machen asked the question, what is the church? Now, 
That to me is, I'm saying, the question we need to be asking. What is the church? What is it we're thanking God for? And what is it, after all, we're asking him for in the future? We want to be a faithful church, obviously, the kind of church that God is blessing. But what is a church? What kind of church deserves to be called a Christian church or a faithful church? A true church. Well, I'm always reminded when I ask that question of what the confession says about what we would call a faithful church. It talks about churches that are more or less pure. People are always asking me, well, you know, what about this church in relation to our church or something like that? And, and I come back to this language. It says uh, in chap- the chapter on the church, particular churches which are members thereof, that is of the true church, are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel according as, rather, the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So faithful churches are more or less pure. Some churches, it goes on to say, are so wicked that they've denigrated into synagogues of Satan. Uh, But among the true churches, there's a spectrum, there's a continuum. There ebbs and flows even in the life of a particular church. Well, I've already told you uh, one place that I've gone in seeking to answer the question, and that's mentioned in these two places. The other place is obviously Acts and the passage we're considering this evening. Is there any passage better suited to answer that question than Acts chapter 2 as we find uh, the first Christians worshiping together in Jerusalem? And then one other place, um, and that is this little booklet by Martin Lloyd-Jones, What is the Church? I agree with Machen when he says the church is the highest Christian answer to the needs of men. Now, that's my vision for the church. I hope that's your vision for the church. I think it's fair to say that's not the modern 21st century Americans vision of the church. But I'm contending for this. I'm contending for the church as the highest Christian answer to the needs of men. And uh, and that that's the kind of vision for the church that I hope will shape the next 50 years of this church. Well, what is my definition? It's it's the definition that Martin Lloyd-Jones gives. I think it's very helpful. He says a church fundamentally is a gathering of people who have been separated from the world. You see, the church is nothing if not a gathering of people together. The church is not an idea. It's not a building. A church is a gathering of people, an ecclesia, an assembly. That necessitates the next question, who brought them together? And the Bible gives a very obvious answer to that question as well. And the answer is not they themselves. It wasn't they who decided to become Christians. It wasn't they who decided to come together. You would have to read passages like John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Or Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. And there you will see in those passages the work of Christ is that the church might be one. That the church might be brought together as one body under him. In other words, the work of Christ uh, includes the individual believer's salvation. But it's much grander than that. The full scope of Jesus Christ's work can only be described in terms of the full scope of the church that he is building. That's the great mystery that was revealed to Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Jesus Christ is calling sinners to himself and he's gathering them together 
as his body. And we call that the church. Well, what are her distinctive qualities and characteristics? And I would give four answers to this question. If it's a gathering of people together who have been separated from the world, the first characteristic of this fellowship or this ecclesia is her holiness. In a sense of being set apart, distinct from the world. Machen says something about this and the responsibility of the church in the new age. He gives three characteristics of the church. The church is radically ethical, radically intolerant, and radically doctrinal. Well, here, uh, I would say, is her radically ethical, uh, her radically radically, uh, intolerant, rather, nature. The church places itself squarely in opposition to the spirit of the age. No, I I was right the first time. I'll get to radically ethical Uh, radically intolerant in a minute, is radically ethical. Christians were indeed by no means perfect. They stood before God only in the merit of Christ their Savior, not in their own merit, but they had been saved for holiness. And even in in this life, that holiness must begin to appear. So then, here are people who have responded to the gospel. That's what we see in Acts. They've heard the gospel, they've responded People who have experienced the new birth, they've been born again. Already God has set them apart as individuals. But that work of conversion that we call the new birth naturally gives them something in common. Something the world doesn't know about. Something that sets the Christian at odds and in contrast to the world. Machen calls this the yearning of every Christian heart for fellowship with other Christians. A need only the church can meet. Suddenly, as a result of the new birth, the Christian man is misunderstood by all his former companions, all his family. But he comes into the church and he says and he finds these people understand him completely. In a sense, the new man in Christ is never at home in this world, but he's at home in the church. So I'm saying there's something instinctive. There's something natural about a Christian being saved and coming into the church. But do you notice in what Peter says that that this is this invitation to come into the church is also bound up in the gospel summons? They ask the question, what shall we do, men and brethren? What shall we do? Verse 37, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you will receive The gift of the Holy Spirit. Not just repent and believe, but be baptized, all of you. Everyone who has heard the message and who has uh, been saved by it. Come into the church. Turn from your sin. And then as a result of this, come into the church through baptism. Bound up in the gospel summons is an invitation into the church. But the second thing that I would say about her, the church, is a willingness to seek to preserve it. You have these people who've been born again. They've been invited and they've come in. They're sharing this new life together. But there's this intense desire to maintain it and not to allow it to be corrupted or defiled by the world. And that's always the danger. If you keep reading in Acts, as we have been, that's what you see. 
You see her holiness established, her unity established, but then it's threatened. It's threatened from without. It's threatened from within. Well, what's a Christian? What's a church? Uh, or, or a church full of Christians? A church full of Christians is a place where God's holiness is preserved. You see, it's not just the beginning, but it's the whole life of a church. You don't have to go very far in Acts to see this. You see it in Acts chapter 5, and you keep on seeing it. And so... The church is also, as Machen says, and I'm sure I've got it right now, uh, it's radically intolerant. The church places itself squarely in opposition to the spirit of the age. She knows who she is. She knows what she stands for. And she knows the kinds of things that will spoil or ruin her fellowship. Don't be deceived, Paul says. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Clean out the lump. Deal with the defilements of sin, lest you be defiled and your fellowship as Christians be spoiled. So there is a willingness to seek to preserve it as a second point. But as a third, there is equally at the same time an eagerness, an intense eagerness that others should come in. To see that the church is growing, a joy when new people come in. This really sets Christianity in contrast with Judaism in the first century. What was so exclusive about Judaism here, these people were yearning for other people to come in. They were excited about it. They were rejoicing. You see, in a sense, in one sense, the church is a closed society. It is composed of Christians only. In that sense, it's radically intolerant. And yet I would add... It is also radically open in the sense that it is open to all, to any and all who call upon the name of the Lord. Here is good news for all, Peter told these people. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. This is something I keep saying in the, from the pulpit, and I'll keep saying it now. And that is that the gospel is to be offered to everyone. We call that the free offer of the gospel. That's the church's charter. She's to preach the gospel to everyone and to receive any and all who, uh, who accept that message as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's part of the good news of the gospel. I keep saying this. It's not just that the gospel saves me. It's that the gospel is able to save others. That's what so animated Paul. It isn't just that I know the power of God to save. It's that because I know it in my own life, I'm eager to tell others. I know it can save you. And anyone who has been saved, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile or whatever, he's my brother. He has a place in the church. This is something that every Christian should hope to see in his own day. We could call it many things. The word is controversial, but it's one of my favorite words, and it's revival. Well, we should long to see revival. If you don't like that word, then just agree with me here. We want to see what Peter saw, and that is the Lord adding daily to those who were being saved. And not just being saved, but brought into the church. That's what the church is. That's what she longs for. That's what she's open to. But the last thing we see is the tremendous fellowship that these Christians enjoyed. These are people, and happily I can say that about the, the saints here, these are people who wanted to be together. They didn't come together uh, begrudging one another with resentment or anything like that. They actually wanted to be together. In fact, we see that they were meeting daily, which uh, is, is pretty amazing to consider. And, and actually, that's what we always see in times of revival. You can never, 
You can never preach enough to people when the Spirit's been poured out. But at the very least, we should say of any true church that the people who have, whom God has brought together under the name of Jesus like to be together. And as they come together, it's not just because they like to be together, but it's out of a genuine and true concern for one another. That's something we see here. They were, they were interested in one another. They were meeting one another's needs. The confession calls this the communion of the saints. And that's exactly what a church is. A church is a communion or a fellowship of saints or of Christians. What then of her function? What was she doing? In other words, why did they gather? Well, to use the language of the Puritans, it is here in the house of God that God set up his ordinances and meets with his people in those ordinances. Acts 2.42. It's one of the most famous passages that Christians seem to know by heart concerning what the church does. She comes together. She devotes herself to teaching and to prayer and to breaking of bread and so on. Those are God's ordinances, you see. And as the saints come together, both then and ever since, we find them attending the ordinances and meeting with God in the ordinances. That is a common feature of both Old and New Testament worship. That though the the ordinances of the Old and the New Covenants uh, differ, the ordinance of worship in each, God's people are ever found seeking And enjoying God in those ordinances he has prescribed. They are ever praising him, communing with him, and enjoying him in his own ordinances. Well, what are they? Acts gives an answer. The first is preaching. They were gladly hearing the word. I think that's my favorite line here. They were gladly hearing the word. You see, every time I talk about preaching, I emphasize there's two sides to this. There's the man preaching, but don't forget about the people hearing the word. And that's all of you. When you come together, I am preaching, but you are hearing the word. And sometimes I'm in the pews hearing the word, too. They were also devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. How are they doing it? Well, they were eagerly uh, eating up all of the preaching and all of the teaching that was being given to them. Now, the apostles' teaching for us simply means the New Testament, both read and preached. In theirs, it meant the actual apostles themselves as they were teaching them. And I would make two observations here. One, whenever the church is as she should be, and again, we're defining what is the church. Well, here's a picture of the church. There is a great interest in preaching. Whenever the church is as she should be, there's a great interest in the preaching. The people are devoted to it. In the days of the Puritans, uh, they would often call the worship service preaching services. They were gathering together to hear sermons. And if they didn't have anyone to preach to them, they would uh, read the sermons of, of other men. The other thing I would notice is that whenever the church is what she is meant to be, that there is an interest in the doctrines, the teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine or teaching. And that's also what explains the interest in the preaching itself. What was being preached and heard gladly was the doctrines, the doctrines of the gospel. By the way, this is where Machen says as a third characteristic that the church is radically doctrinal. She's radically devoted to the doctrines. It's a way of life, Machen says, based upon the teaching. Well, what was the message? 
What was it that they were teaching that the people were devoting themselves to? Let us agree at least of this, that the message found in the church today should be the same message as taught by the apostles. We should be devoted to the same doctrines and the same teaching. Still, we should be devoted uh, to that and find the same truths being preached. What are those truths? Well, those truths are, I don't have time to unpack them here, but I just think of Peter's sermon that led up to this. It's a message of sin. Man, whether he's Jew or Gentile, hopelessly lost in sin. He said to those Jews, you're the ones who handed over Jesus Christ to be saved, uh, to be to be crucified. And was there ever a worse sin than that? And yet to you this day, God offers salvation in the name of Jesus. The message of sin, the message of salvation, the worst sinner in the world can be saved if only he has faith. And the moment he has faith, he has a place in the church. He ought to be baptized. That's the message. Let let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A Christian is someone who has been pardoned of his sins, but equally he's received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now he finds new life in the spirit. He's free of the guilt of sin. He's free of the power of sin. What a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. This is what Peter was preaching to them. And this is what many of them were beginning to experience. And they wanted to know all about it. What is this good good news you preach to us? And so the preaching is in the first place. And it always belongs in the first place. But next to the preaching, we find the sacraments. And what's a sacrament? You see, well, I've already talked about baptism and uh, or I've read about baptism again and again. And not only that, but there was the Lord's Supper. Well, what's a sacrament? A sacrament is a visible sign with a promise attached to it. That's uh, that is, in essence, Calvin's definition. A visible sign with a promise attached to it. Or as Thomas Watson says, and he's connecting here, as I would seek to do the word preached and the sacraments administered together. He says in the word, we hear God's voice in the sacraments. We have his kiss. And so the sacraments, this is how I would put it. The sacraments adorn the preaching. They don't stand on their own, but they adorn the preaching. They set forth the truths preached for the eyes to see and the hands to touch. And in this way, whatever is promised to us in the preaching is sealed to us in the sacraments. We hear his voice in the preaching, in the sacraments we have, his kiss. It's obvious that the early church was gathering together in order to observe the sacraments. And they were observing two sacraments. There's really no question about that. They were observing baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is why she gathered. It was part of her regular practice. Uh, We could also argue in light of this as we've begun to observe here For the regular weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because that's what the early church did. Why do we gather? Well, we gather in order to hear the preaching, but also to have the sacraments. There's your answer. In that sense, I think we could all agree with the reformers in light of this passage. That they were right to see the two great things that are to be found in the church always is word and sacrament. They were always talking about that. Word and sacrament. And wherever you find those two things... Rightly observed and administered, you have a church, a true church. But that's not all. We also find that the the church 
was a praying church. What were the kinds of things they were praying for? Well, they were praying, uh, we find in Acts, uh, God's favor and protection in times of persecution. And sometimes uh, we may pray for something like that as well. They were asking God to bless the preaching and to win new converts and to pour out his spirit upon the church to further the kingdom of God. But more than anything else, what I would stress about the prayers of the early church, and I hope the prayers of this church, that by prayer, they and we commune with God himself. For here's the amazing thing about the gospel, which the believer finds in the church there more than anywhere else, and that is Jesus Christ, and he alone gives man access to God. It isn't just that he pardons his sin, wonderful as that is, and gives him his spirit, but that he, he opens up heaven itself and says, well, invites man to commune with God. And that's the way the apostles always preached the gospel. They said, you now who stand far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Well, what's the use in that if you don't make use of your privilege? Uh, so they were ever inviting sinners to come into the church and to commune with God. If you think of uh, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 or the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, this new and living way opened by the blood of Jesus. He's at, uh, at pains eloquently to, to explain that to us. He then bids us or urges us to make use of it. And how does he do so? He says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints, as is the habit of some. Don't you realize that when Christians gather together, that what they're doing more than anything else is they're making use of the blood of Jesus? They're drawing, drawing nigh unto God. And, 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 and that's what a believer does when he prays. He's enjoying his access to God, especially as the church comes together. For the church is a communion of those who live in the presence of God. Finally, we see, in answer to the question, what were they doing? They were praising God. We read that in verse 37. What Hughes Oliphant Old calls the ministry of praise, or we would call it the ministry of song. Let me give you another Thomas Watson quote. Praising God is one of the highest and purest acts of religion. In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. The Apostle Paul speaks of this. He speaks of Christian worship, spirit-filled worship, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, or be full of the Spirit, uh, singing to God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Christian who's been born again, who is full of the Spirit, finds a new song in his heart. He finds in his heart something that wasn't there before, the desire to praise the God who saved him. And so very naturally, as such people come together, you will find them singing, praising God, praising God for the great things he has done for them, pardoning their sins, accepting them in Christ, delivering them from the evil one, and even for the great things he will one day do. Now, let me just say, and again, we've experienced this tonight. This, this, well, I didn't say this earlier, but I'll say now, this is a preaching church. If ever I'm pleading for preaching here, it's not because we don't believe in preaching. Praise God, we do believe in preaching. But this is also a singing church. And it's not just because we have this wonderful flat roof and the acoustics are so wonderful. Uh, and that we have so many good uh, natural or even trained singers here. That's part of it. But I'm not just saying that we're good at singing in the natural sense. That's not, that's not uh, what, what uh, scripture is describing either. 
it uses the word praise. There's an element of praise in the singing. That's what I mean when I say that we're a singing church. And that's something spiritual. That's something the natural cannot produce. produce. That's something only the Holy Spirit can produce in the man who's been born again by his grace and who's full of his life. And it is in that sense that a Christian only can really praise God, though any man might sing. And so when I say this is a singing church, I thank God for that. But I also beg God that it might always be so. For the true church has always been known for her singing. But as I close the sermon, I want to close on two points of application. Fifty years gone by, fifty years to come. Happily, the first 50 years, as far as I know, have been largely marked by these things, more or less. When I read, or what I read in Acts, is what I hear and have seen the saints at Calvary doing for the time I've been here and for the 50 years she's been around. While the American church has abandoned so much of the old paths, still I find Calvary OPC, holding them dear. Not unlike, uh, I think Mike was saying this earlier, not unlike the early church, marred by difficulties at times, perhaps at times less pure, but finding, I think this is the testimony of all of us who are here, finding, as Paul says, that when we are faithless, he is faithful. And so I'm very hesitant To give man any credit here, certainly I'm hesitant to take any of the credit myself or even to give the credit to the prior ministers uh, who have who have labored here, or the saints who have labored here. In fact, I'm I'm never really comfortable speaking of faithful churches. Let me be so bold as to say there are no faithful churches, not in the sense that man gets the credit. There are only churches that are preserved by God's faithfulness. It is he who holds the lampstand in his hand. We thank him. This is reason to praise God. That's the first point of application, praise. The second point of application is prayer. What will determine the next 50 years, if there should be another 50, whether that is we can withstand as as so many churches already have not been able to do, the forces of modernism in the 21st century, which I would say are far stronger than the forces of modernism in the 20th century, what will determine whether we at Calvary can withstand such such forces will be determined entirely by our commitment to the very things that I have outlined for you this evening. Can we say with clarity... (laughs) We know what the church is, and we know what the church is supposed to be, according to Scripture. That is what I've sought to outline for you this evening. Do we know what it is to be the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of people whom Christ has set apart and gathered unto himself? Every time we come together, that's the question we ought to ask ourselves. What is the church, and what is she supposed to be? I realize that there are to this day certain inadequacies in this church. We are not yet what we are meant to be. But are we open as a church to being reformed day by day by God's word? Will the Bible continue to offer for us the only answer to this question? The choice before us is is exactly that which was before J. Gresham Machen in the 20th century. 
or Martin Luther in the 16th century, or countless other Christians in their own time, just as it was for that little group of Christians 50 years ago here in Tallahassee. And it's the question, which way will you go? The broad path that leads to death or the narrow path that leads to life. You see, if you go that narrow path, and I think this is the testimony of this church as well, it will never be easy. It will always be hard and you will always be opposed. But it is the way not only full of blessing and life, but which leads to life. And so there is on the one side the way of the world. So popular and effective, it seems. We look around us and we find churches which are full. And we're tempted to go the way that they are going. Or will we continue at Calvary to take the old paths, I'm calling them. Well worn by Presbyterians in ages past. However, seemingly impractical and implausible to the modern man and the modern woman. Here is reason to pray for the next 50 years. And as I close, I would close with the words with which Machen closes, Christianity and liberalism, speaking of the church in the modern world. And I think these words are just as applicable today. It's a lengthy quote. This is what he says. Whatever solution there may be, one thing is clear. There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart, which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations even in the present age of conflict that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed. But such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world. One goes into the church to seek refresh refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of the secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. Thus, the welfare of the world is entered even into the house of God and sad indeed is the heart of the man. Who has come seeking peace? Is there no refuge from the strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race to forget human pride to forget the passions of war to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife and to unite in overwhelming gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Amen. And let us uh, stand together as we close out our worship together and sing hymn 245. Great is thy faithfulness, hymn 245.